Are you familiar with the name Dr. Gabor Mate? He's a Vancouver-based physician and author. He recently published a great book called The Myth of Normal. Dr. Mate says that when he's talking to someone about an addiction they're experiencing, his first question is not, what's wrong with the addiction? But rather, what is right with your addiction? In other words, what kind of benefit are you getting from it? And so, for example, Dr. Mate describes how Jamie Lee Curtis, the, the famous actress, was addicted to opiates. She presumably had a lot of money, but she was actually stealing opiates or manipulating physicians into writing prescriptions for opiates on her behalf. Dr. Mate asks Jamie Lee Curtis, what do opiates do for you? And she responds, they were like a warm bath. The way it feels when you're cold and you step into a warm, not hot, but a warm, really warm bath where that feeling of ease rises as you lower into the warmth. It was a very familiar feeling for me and one that I loved. Similarly, Dr. Mate describes a conversation he had with one of his patients on the downtown east side. Dr. Mate describes this person as being 30-something years old and fierce-looking. Someone with weightlifter arms, a shaved head, a big brass earring on his right earlobe. Dr. Mate looks at him and asks the question, What does heroin do for you? And this fierce-looking man looks straight at Dr. Mate and says, Doc, I don't know how to tell you this exactly. It's like when you're three years old, sick and shivering with fever, and your mother puts you on her lap, wraps you in a warm blanket, and gives you some warm chicken soup. That's what heroin feels like. We're currently in a sermon series on how various people in the Gospels encounter Jesus. And we're looking at the transformation they experience as we travel toward Holy Week and Easter. And as we see their change, we can get a glimpse in terms of the transformation we can experience through Jesus. And today we're going to be looking at the experience of a woman who deeply wants to, in a manner of speaking, feel the ease that comes from lowering herself into a warm bath, the comfort that comes from having a warm blanket wrapped around your shoulders when you feel cold, and, and, and drinking warm chicken soup. In the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 3, we read these words. So he, that is Jesus, left Judea, and went back once more into Galilee. Let's pray. Living God, as we look at the journey of your son Jesus today, north toward Galilee, we pray that you would help us find our path and the living, life-giving water that you offer us through your spirit. Only you can make that happen, and we ask that you would. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So in John 4, 3, again, we read that Jesus leaves Judea 
and then makes his way back to Galilee. And so he's traveling north. And then in verse 4, we read, he had to go through Samaria. Now, technically speaking, Jesus did not have to go through Samaria. Though, as he was going from Judea, north to, to Galilee, going through Samaria would have represented the most direct route. A route with a distance of about 100 kilometers or a three-day walk. But the fact is, he didn't need to take that route. Many devout Jews in his time would not go straight from Judea up to Galilee. They would go east to avoid Samaria, almost doubling the distance and doubling the time. Why would they do that? Why would they go east around Samaria when it would take twice as long? Very simply, it was because there were Samaritans in Samaria. Who were the Samaritans? Samaritans were the mixed-blooded offspring of the Jewish people and the Canaanites, and they were seen by the Jewish people as unclean. Centuries before, many of the Jewish people had been taken as exiles into Babylon. Some of the Jewish people remained in their homeland, and some of them intermarried with Canaanites, and their mixed-blooded offspring were known as Samaritans, and they were despised by Jewish people. The Samaritans and the Jewish people had also been at war with one another in conflict, and so they were not on talking terms. Jesus could have avoided Samaria by going around it, but we read in verse 4, he had to go through Samaria. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was prompting Jesus to meet a particular Samaritan woman there. And so we read in verse 5. So he, Jesus, came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? So what do we know about this Samaritan woman whom Jesus encounters at the well? We know that she was an outsider, maybe a kind of ultimate outsider. How so? We know by her gender. She's a woman in a patriarchal world which wrongly values men over women. We also know she's an outsider because she is a Samaritan. And Samaritans were seen because of their mixed blood as unclean. Again, wrongly seen that way, but seen that way nonetheless. We also get a little clue that she is an outsider because of the time she comes to the well and because she comes there alone. Do you recall from the text what time of day it was when she comes to draw water? It was noontime. Why is that significant? Because no one in their world, if given the choice, would choose to engage in the brack, brack, the, the back, maybe it felt like a brack, breaking work, a tongue twister, of filling their jars of water and, and then bringing that back, breaking load home at noon, which was the most scorchingly hot time of the day. 
If people had a choice in the matter, a real choice, they chose to do it, and it was usually women, in the early time of mourning when it was relatively cool. If you were here on January 1st, New Year's Day, at this service, you may recall our colleague, Pastor Sharon, speaking on this text, and, and she mentioned that for years, she had made it an annual habit of going to India, to the village where her dad was from, and she noticed that at the crack of dawn, a group of women would get up early, and together, they would head out to one of the wells, not just to get water, but to talk, to laugh, to catch up on the gossip and the news of the town, and to simply connect and enjoy each other's company. So it would have been in Jesus and the Samaritan woman's day. Women would have gone to fetch water, not just to get something to drink or wash with uh, for their households, but they would have gone typically with other women early in the morning as a time to catch up, to engage each other's company, to laugh, to enjoy. But this woman comes alone at noon, which suggests that she is an outsider. And Jesus is about to break all kinds of social and cultural barriers in order to connect with her. So he, he talks to her. He, he approaches her and says, can you give me a drink? Will you give me a drink? How is this breaking a, a cultural barrier? Well, devout men in this time would not have spoken to a woman in public. A Jewish man certainly would not have spoken to a Samaritan woman in public if he was, quote, honorable, if he was following the rules. And definitely not at a well, because ancient texts tell us that to initiate a conversation with a woman at a well would have been seen as flirting, it was a place to initiate certain kinds of romantic encounters. Jesus breaks all those rules, and he approaches this woman and says, Will you give me something to drink? Will you give me some water? And so she's shocked, and she says, Why is it that you, as a Jew, are talking to me as a Samaritan, for Jews and Samaritans don't associate with each other? And here's how Jesus responds. He says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So the woman said, you have, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, the image here of a really thirsty person having their parched throats quenched with water maybe sort of lost on us in terms of its impact because we live in a place, if you live in Vancouver and we're in a time of year here in winter where we feel like way too much water is coming from the sky at us. Have you seen the t-shirt the with, the, with the quip, Vancouver Rain Festival? <laughs> April 1st to March 31st. 
that's how we feel. And if you're, if you're new to Vancouver, Mark Cunahan and others, it, the sun does come out somewhere around June or July. You know, it will come out, we say, in faith. What was my point? <laughs> this was not that kind of place. I've been to the Middle East. I've been to Africa where the temperatures can soar into the 40 degrees Celsius range where water is a matter of life and death. This is that kind of world. And Jesus said, if you knew who it was who was speaking to you, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. Now, in this world, living water can refer to fresh flowing spring water as opposed to still flat well water. And in this world, fresh flowing spring water was seen as superior to flat still well water. That's what she's thinking of here, like a, a natural spring from somewhere. But this expression, living water, according to John chapter 7, according to Jesus' own words, can be a metaphor for the Spirit of God that wells up or that can well up within us like an artesian spring. And this is what Jesus means because he says in verse 14, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life, a gushing fountain of God's life. Let me say here in parenthesis, when Jesus says, if you drink the water I give you, you will never thirst again, he doesn't mean that in an absolute and literal sense. We know that physical thirst is healthy for us because it turns us to actual water. We know that spiritual thirst can be healthy in that it can turn us to God, a source of spiritual nourishment. Jesus himself affirms thirst when he says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and Thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus affirms thirst. So when he says, if you drink of the water I give you, you'll never thirst again. What he means is that you will never be scorchingly and hopelessly thirsty. Because you will have within you an artesian spring of living water, of the Holy Spirit flowing through you like a river, so you'll always have access to it. So you do not need to be scorchingly or hopelessly thirsty. The woman still doesn't quite understand. And so she says, give me some of this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw this heavy water. And then Jesus seemingly shifts the conversation he says to her in verse 16, Go and call your husband. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Jesus seems to be abruptly and randomly shifting the conversation here. As he says to the woman, I can offer you water that will quench your thirst. So he's talking about a parched throat, an actual thirst. And then he begins to talk about her previous marriages 
and the person she's living with now. It seems like it's random. It seems like it's a big shift. But they are connected. Jesus talks about her soul thirst and then points to the way she's been living and seeking to quench that thirst, whether consciously or unconsciously, so that she will realize that her current plan isn't working very well. It's not working at all. Now, we don't know many details of her previous five marriages. It may be that she's completely morally innocent insofar as those relationships are concerned. It could have been that all five of her previous husbands died, that she was widowed again and again and again. But even if that were the case, in her world, people would have seen her as having gone through five husbands and therefore dangerous, is therefore really unlucky, is therefore cursed, she would have been seen in really dark, bad light. If some of those marriages had ended in divorce, regardless of, quote, whose fault it was in this very traditional society, again, it would have cast her in negative light. And the fact that she was now living with a man that she was not married to, whether by Jewish or Samaritan standards, she was committing a kind of moral transgression in their eyes. So Jesus talks about our thirst for something. Our desire to have our parched throats quenched. And then he starts talking about her previous relationships, her marriages, her current relationship. And he is suggesting the way that you are seeking to be satisfied at your soul level isn't working, is it? And some people, some of us, whether women or men, will turn to romance as a way to bring us a sense of satisfaction, comfort, and solace. As Dr. Gabor Mate pointed out, others among us, including Jamie Lee Curtis, at least in her past, his patients will turn to drugs to give them a sense that they are being lowered into a warm and comforting bath or having a warm blanket wrapped around their cold shoulders or given warm chicken soup. Dr. Mate points out that when a person takes drugs, they experience pleasure. They say, it feels good. But then they will say, I want more. Which is different from an experience where someone says, it feels good. I am now contented. There's a difference. What do you turn to to give you a sense that you are being lowered into a warm and comfortable, comforting bath? Or to give you a sense that you are eating, drinking, warm chicken soup. What do you turn to for solace? To ease the restlessness of your soul. For some of us, it may or may not be romance or drugs. For some of us, it might be alcohol or a certain kind of food that we're looking to for comfort and solace. For others among us, it might be binge-watching Netflix or Disney Plus or whatever your favorite streaming service is. Or it might be scrolling on your phone or on your device. It might be viewing porn or playing video games or shopping or whatever. Let me ask you this question. Does the experience lead to a, this feels good, 
I want more? Or is it a, this feels good. Now I am contented. There is a difference. Some people turn to money to give them a sense of comfort and solace. There's been a lot of research on this that shows that once your basic needs are met, additional money does not give a person additional happiness. I know someone who interacts because of her work with people who are on the top 50 richest people in BC list. I didn't even know there was such a list until I met this person. <laughs> you would be happy, you would think, right, if you were part of that list, just to be part of that select group. According to my friend who interacts with these people, you can be on that list, and if you see that people are surpassing you on that list, moving ahead of you, you can feel like a failure. You can feel miserable. Getting more money in that case is a, it feels good in the moment, but I want more kind of experience. Others seek recognition and fame for their solace, for their warm bath experience. Is this a good strategy? Does this work? There are famous actors and actresses in Hollywood who are depressed because they see that someone has become or is becoming more famous than they are. That's a, it feels good in the moment when I get recognition. I want more and more and more of this. If you were here last Sunday, you may recall that when I was in high school, I was following the path of a young teen tennis player named Boris Becker, who had won Wimbledon twice as a young person once at the age of 17. So Boris Becker was successful as a tennis player. He was rich. He was famous. And yet he said, I am so unhappy. I am unfulfilled. I am so unhappy. Last week I also quoted from David Foster Wallace's famous commencement address at Kenyon College. Let me requote some of that and quote something that I didn't quote last week. And he's speaking not as a religious person when he says to the students, everybody worships. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid or fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Worship anything but a transcendent God, and it will eat you alive. Well, it says, there is no such thing as not worshiping. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. And Jesus, long before Wallace spoke those words, invited a Samaritan woman and now invites us to worship the living God. He says to her and to us in verse 23, Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father, God, in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. When we worship God, meaning when we put God truly front and center in our lives, God restores our character and we find ourselves existing in the joyous 
nourishing river of God's eternal life. The woman says in response, I, I know the Messiah called the Christ is coming one day. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus responds, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Jesus is the key. He is the one who will explain the entirety of our existence. He alone is the one that can quench the deepest thirst of our souls. So how do we receive this artesian spring that can flow from within us, this, this gushing fountain of God's life that can quench our thirst? Jesus, in John chapter 7, on the final day of the Feast of the Tabernacles, at the most climactic moment, stands up and says, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me. Let them drink, and whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. If you are thirsty, Jesus says, come to me. And rivers, rivers of living water, the waters of God's Spirit will flow in and through them. How is this possible? Not long thereafter, on the cross, Jesus would hang there and he would say, I thirst, I thirst. He's given a sponge of vinegar wine that probably wasn't satisfying at all. But Jesus not only thirsted physically from a parched throat, he also thirsted spiritually. You see, for a time, as he bore our sin in himself, our shame, he was separated from God, his Father. Someone with whom he had been connected from all of eternity past. So he was not only physically thirsty on that cross, but spiritually thirsty. So that we, through his death, we, through his bearing our sin in his body on the cross, could be filled with his spirit, the waters, the rivers of his life, and have our thirst quenched to have our soul satisfied. The woman at the well begins to understand that Jesus is no ordinary human being. And so what does she do? She leaves her precious jars of water at the well. She runs back to this village where almost everyone has rejected her. And she says, I just met a man who, who told me everything that I ever did. Could it be, might it be that he is the Messiah? Come and meet him. When she says, this man told me everything I ever did, Obviously, that was a slight exaggeration. Jesus didn't tell her everything that she ever did. But this woman, in Jesus' presence, felt truly seen like she never had been before. She recognized that Jesus saw her and, and, and recognized her strength, her beauty, and her power. That he also perceived her flaws and shortcomings, her addictions, her sin and her shame, and yet, despite that, loved her without condition. And when she felt seen and known in the totality of who she was, and yet received and loved, there was something that grew within her, a life, a contentment that she had not known before. 
And when you realize that Jesus sees you, that he sees you in your totality, he sees your strength, your power, your beauty, and your shortcomings, your flaws, your addictions, your sin and shame, and yet loves you without condition. In fact, washes you with his water, adopts you as a daughter, receives you as a son. There is a contentment, a life that bubbles up within you. It's God's life and God's gratitude, which is not a, it feels good, I want more, 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 restless, restless, restless experience, but it's a, it feels good, and I am growing in contentment. I close with the words of the great novelist Kazuo Ishiguro after he won the Nobel Prize in Literature. He had this great insight, and he wrote, All I know is that I've wasted all these years looking for something, a sort of trophy I'd get, only if I really, really did enough to deserve it. But I don't want it anymore. I want something else now. I want something warm and sheltering, something I can turn to regardless of what I do, regardless of who I become, something that will just be there always, like tomorrow's sky. And if you want something that is warm and sheltering that will always be there for you, like tomorrow's sky in this world and the next, then turn with all your heart to the one who became thirsty so that you might never be hopelessly thirsty. Turn to the Christ. Make him front and center. Really believe in him. And out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Let's pray together. You are, whether you know it or not, in the presence of the God who made you, who created you, who loves you more than you can imagine. And in your heart, even as this woman was doing, you can turn toward your creator And you can say, I don't understand it all, but would you birth in my soul an artesian spring of your living water, of your life, of your spirit. Cleanse me and fill me with your river of life. You can pray that for the very first time right now or in a fresh new way and say, Jesus Christ, give me the water that you have offered. I receive it now. Fill me with your life. Thank you for becoming thirsty on the cross that I might never be hopelessly thirsty. And as you pray that prayer, may you be filled with the very life, the very river of God. May it come to you for your good and for your joy and satisfaction. But may it also come through you for the good of the world. In the strong and nourishing and quenching name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.